Welcome to the third episode of Defense Talk, Securing UK Advantage, a new podcast brought to you by the Council on Geostrategy in partnership with Trade Association ADS Group and sponsored by industry powerhouse BAE Systems. Every two weeks, our podcast discusses key questions that shape defense, technological and national security agendas in the UK and explores the main themes in British defense in the context of intensifying geopolitical competition. At the time of this recording, Remembrance Day has just recently passed. Each year, Remembrance Sunday is an opportunity for us as a nation to remember the service and sacrifice of all those that have defended our freedoms and protected our way of life. The commemoration beautifully exemplifies the strong relationship between our society and those who serve or have served, and also reminds us of the relevance and importance of our armed forces today. I'm Victoria Starek Somalin, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined for this episode by Howard Musto, the industry editor at The Telegraph, who's my co-host today. Hello, hello. Thanks very much for having me. Um, and we're going to be talking about the relationship between UK society and the armed forces. And our guest today is the Right Honourable James Heapy, who is the Minister of State for Armed Forces in the Ministry of Defence, having been appointed to the role in July 2022. Minister Heapy previously served as Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Defence Procurement. He has been the MP for Wales since 2015 and served in the Army, where he achieved the rank of Major. Minister Heapy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So our topic today is our country needs you, the relationship between UK society and the armed forces. And I feel that the best way to start this conversation would be by citing recent statistics on the public's opinion of the UK armed forces. A YouGov poll from August 2023 shows the following results on the question of confidence in the British armed forces in defence. 45% have a fair amount of confidence, 14 a lot of confidence, 22 not very much, and six, no confidence at all. So that's about 59% with some degree of confidence or big degree of confidence in the armed forces and others, not that much. Now, a YouGov poll from June 2023 shows similar results. Minister, what's your view about these numbers and are we faring well here? So I think that in the context of public confidence in other key institutions, those numbers are pretty good. Um, but I think we have to be clear that in a time when people's confidence in you know, other big pillars of the British state, parliament, politics, BBC, the police, uh, are all to some degree becoming more contested, we have to be clear that the armed forces are becoming, um, uh, 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 becoming victim to more contested views as well. Now, some of that's not new. I served in an army that was in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the political decision to go to Iraq was very contentious. And we were, of course, aware of that at the time when we were we were there. And by the time I was there in 2007, we were fighting an insurgency that existed because we were there. And so it kind of felt even more difficult to explain to your troops and their families why you were going. Um, and I think that, that that trend is going to grow. You know, the, 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 the way that our adversaries seek to influence our public discourse, subvert our politics, um, contest narratives and erode public trust um, means that the next generation of commanders, and I was making exactly this point to 
aspiring young officers at Sandhurst just last week, the next generation of commanders are going to have to work even harder to persuade their troops and more importantly their troops families about the justness of the course that they're engaged in now hopefully final point the public of the early 2000s disassociated their criticism of the political decision to send us from their support of us so we were sort of you know they, they were very very patriotic and supportive of the military whilst critical or undecided over whether we should have been there in the first place. And if that continues, then that's kind of fine. It means the institution of the armed forces continues to enjoy broad public support. Politics becomes ever more contested. But my concern is when you see what's happening to the police and the BBC and other big kind of institutions of the British state, that that separation of the political decision-making from the military delivery might start to blur. And I think that's a very dangerous place because the armed forces are not a political body they do what is the decision of the government of the day and it would be catastrophic i think in terms of the relationship between the military and the public if the military became uh, uh directly associated blamed or credited with the political decision rather than just being revered as those who have chosen to serve our nation and potentially make the most ultimate sacrifice in the name of that duty you touched a bit on disinformation there how much do you think is is that and how much the other factors that you brought up there huge i mean i i think um i i i think you have to sort of recognize that no foreign policy decision no decision to use the uk military instrument will ever now be taken without a real effort from those with whom we compete and our adversaries to seek to undermine the logic behind that decision. Even when it, you know, from, from gifting kit to Ukraine all the way through to heaven forbid having to deploy our military. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and the way that that disinformation or even sometimes misinformation, but it's the disinformation that's the most insidious. Mm. The way that that spreads on social media it, 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 I don't think it is the same as those sort of two thousand three, four, five, six missions to Iraq, where the public were grateful for the service of the military but critical of the political decision. It feels now like the way that that disinformation is put out into society tars the whole state with the same brush, and I'm not so sure that the public would, or, or parts of the public, would separate the military from the political and, and that's that's my concern so what are you saying to the likes of facebook google twitter etc about this about you know what damage this is doing so i mean there's a on on the damage that it might do from a national security perspective in terms of our ability to kind of put a force into the field at time of geopolitical crisis nothing explicit because i, I don't think that's a line of work that is necessary at this stage but the wider effort to tackle the subversion of our politics and the interference in our public discourse by foreign bodies, that is a very live piece of work led by Tom Tugendhat, the security minister under his protecting democracy um, work strand. And he's really important, really important. But from your perspective, what do they need to do on this front? Because 
you know, we've got a, a land war in Europe, um, things are heating up generally, this number should perhaps be quite a bit higher. And if it is being held down by disinformation, that must be that must be a real reason for clamping down on it. Well, what the, 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 the theory I'm offering is that the intensity of the disinformation, uh, even when we're not putting our troops into battle, is already pretty fierce. If Parliament were, or if the government today were making a decision and Parliament was seeking to vote on it, like it did with Syria or Iraq, or whatever else, you can just imagine the way that that disinformation would be pumped in in the weeks leading up to that sort of vote or that sort of decision to be taken. And then when we were sort of generating the force, if you think back to 2003, you know, the gap from sort of George Bush and Tony Blair saying, let's do it, to actually rolling across the start line. There's kind of six months when everything is getting itself in position. You can imagine the weight of disinformation that would be pumped in to Western public discourse during that period. So as part of Tom's work, when we, where we seek to understand what foreign powers are doing to subvert and uh, sow uh, doubt and concern in, in, in the British state, clearly within that has to be an eye on how we would make sure that if the government today is seeking to use the military instrument, yes, of course, there should be debate and challenge. That's, that's good, free democracy. But if the people that were seeking to use the military instrument against are deliberately seeking to subvert, to try and stop us from taking the decision to do so in the first place, that's clearly very dangerous. And we have to be resilient to that, hence Tom's work. Minister, your reference to your colleague Tom, but of course you are one of the key leaders and champions of our armed forces um, in your role, which encompasses all aspects of armed forces activity. How does your role support the armed forces and how does the Ministry of Defence and wider government do the same? Well, I mean, our previous conversation notwithstanding, um, there is still an amazing and innate support to those who wear the nation's uniform in communities across the land. Um, and I still think that matters. I mean, I, I, I think people uh, now serve for many reasons, uh, and some of those will be very different to why people served 20 years ago, 50 years, 100 years ago. Um, but there is still, I think everybody who wears uniform that says that when they walk into a room and everybody looks at them in that way to say kind of, you know, what you do is important. You're, thank you for doing it. That it, it does, it does matter. It stirs. And that's why, uh, you know, this time of year is important in terms of communities everywhere mm -hmm. showing that gratitude for those that serve. I think the way that government has to do that is um, partly through the way we make policy to look after our people. And there are some things like accommodation, for example, which have not hit the mark over recent years and where we need to invest urgently, and we are, in order to put that right. So too do we need to look at the terms and conditions of service for our armed forces to make sure that they meet modern expectations of the workforce. Because, I, I, like I said, I mean, I, I think people are now serving slightly differently. So that doesn't mean that at the very heart of it all mm. is not a deep sense of duty and service and patriotism, but just you know the way people build their careers, the expectations of those with whom they share their lives, all of those things are very different to say 20 or 30 years ago. So the Haythorn-Thwaite review, uh, which is the first time since the 90s that we've done a full kind of root and branch review of all the terms and conditions of service for the military, 
was published uh, earlier in the year. Some of it's pretty radical. But when we're trying to recruit and retain a millennial and even more uh, challengingly a centennial Gen Z workforce, we have to have in mind terms and conditions of service that will work for that generation. And so government clearly needs to engage in that and make sure that we, particularly the MOD, are delivering um, a career structure, an offer to people in the military that remains attractive. So what do they want then that's different from years ago? What's, what's, what is it that they'd like to see? So, look, I mean, I think that um, you, you, you do have to dance on the head of a pin a little because I, I don't for a second want to suggest that people going into the recruitment office now, or more accurately, onto the recruiting websites now, are not motivated by the same sense of duty and patriotism as those that have gone before them. They are. But there is people don't think about their career as a single continuum of 21 to 60 or 21 to 55. Mm. They think of, uh, you know, a, a portfolio career where they sort of bounce around doing lots of different things. In many ways, the military career structure lends itself to that. You mm. know, people tend to do a posting for a few years, then be posted somewhere else for a few years. So in some senses, we were ahead of the game. But I think that um, the sort of Gen Z don't, think about their careers in that sort of longevity and therefore we should be more willing to accept that. So one of the key recommendations in Haythornthwaite is a spectrum of service that allows people to dial up and down their commitment across a spectrum from regular to reserve so that we don't lose them when they mm. decide they want to go off and do something else. They just move themselves into the reserve, go off and do something else and they may well come back to us. And that way we get more service out of them later in their careers, particularly when they start to think about some of the wider parts of the military package that is very valuable. So the subsidized housing, the health care, um, you know, there are some really good bits of serving the pensions. There are some really good bits of serving in the military that when you're 21, 22, take it from me, I gave absolutely no thought whatsoever. So mm. all that really mattered to me was the salary that I had to spend on having fun at the weekends. But by the time you're in your 30s, you're actually starting to think, well, actually, the pension's pretty good, the housing's pretty good, the healthcare's pretty good. This is actually, a, the package is good. So, so just uh, thinking about how we remunerate people to reflect their priorities at different stages in their career, how we allow them to move their service across the spectrum of regular and reserve so that they can experience other things without us losing them from the force altogether. Thinking about how we use the wider set of of benefits, perks, entitlements that come with service in the military to kind of particularly uh, um, attract and retain those with the pinch point trades. You know, nuclear engineers, for example, mm. are the absolute critical path to our nuclear deterrent. And we should, you know, we have to be realistic and sort of willing to compete with those for the, you know, with people who are building nuclear power stations and whatever else. You know, and, and we just, there's no point pretending duty patriotism service gets you so far, but if the pay differential is 200 grand thereafter mm. you've kind of got to think about how you're going to try and bridge that gap somehow even if not all the way and that's what Haythornthwaite is really challenging us to do so will you pay them more in those areas you've you've mentioned because it's yeah. not just there it's tanker drivers it's people in cyber security yeah um because are you still likely to miss your recruitment target for this year yeah i will i mean never say never um but as i see it recruitment remains very challenging um, and that in itself is an interesting 
thing because ordinarily when there is a time of war and increased geopolitical tension people tend to rally to the colors so it is interesting that we've not seen that on the back of what's been happening in ukraine now, you know mm. some people uh, you know, listening to various podcasts and reading various commentary some people say it's not really that they rally to the colors at the time of geopolitical crisis they rally to the colors when the uk military is actively engaged in operations and clearly in ukraine we are not um so is that the distinction or to go back to the first question is it reflective of a wider sense of change in society because you the numbers you reported were sort of headline numbers mm -hmm. society-wide i wonder if we were to unpack those down into the cohort from whom the military recruits 18 to 25 i wonder if those numbers would be different it'd be fascinating to to, to, to understand, unless you've got the numbers handy, which would be fantastic. <laughs> well, I have plenty, but it prompted me to think actually about a different question. So the same survey asked, thinking about the size of the UK armed forces, do you think it should be increased, decreased, or remain about the same? Now, this question was asked to those who think we should keep the armed forces, so that's just a caveat to keep in mind. And 48% respondents said that we should increase in size, the UK armed forces. 31 said remain about the same size. 3% said should decrease in size and 18 don't know. But um, we know that recently, well, the government has announced the plans to cut down on the numbers when it comes to the serving personnel in the armed forces, particularly in, in, in the army. Um, how do you think um, this recent announcement might actually impact the opinion polls? It's not, it's not that recent. It's two, three years ago that hmm. the army to 82,000 was announced. Um, I think it's a sort of an announcement that's been recycled by our opponents True. a few times since um, what matters is your ability to project force and it is inescapably the case that improvements in technology lead to lower demands on people uh, now the army is the one that people talk about because that was the most obvious mm -hmm. um, reduction in size but if you take a First World War destroyer or cruiser and look at the size of the ship's company, you were sort of eight, nine hundred people. Why? Because there were boilers that required coal to be physically loaded into them. Um, you look at a Second World War, war destroyer or cruiser, you had a ship's company of about 500. And you look at a Type 45 destroyer, now you have a ship's company of about 200. The, ships, the, the destroyer right now is light years ahead in capability of the destroyer of 1914 and yet the company the ship's company is a quarter to a fifth of the size so i just think as a just as a macro point because i don't think anybody who listens to this is going to contest that a type 45 destroyer would beat a first world war destroyer and yet the number of people on board is is a fraction so people people do not automatically equate to mass and capability technological advances allow you to reduce that number but if you look at the platforms of other services it is true to say that a tank crew in the second world war was three or four a tank crew today is three or four the number of mm. people on a fighter jet or a fighter plane in the second world war was one the number of people on a fighter jet today is one now it feels to me 
that with the advances of remote weapon systems, we're not that far away from the crew of a tank being one or two, not three or four. And I am certain that with the, uh, the GCAP, this global combat air program that the UK is developing with uh, Italy and Japan and others, um, that we will end up designing a system of systems where there may well be a super stealthy sixth generation jet at the center of what would of, of an otherwise uncrewed system around it. And so what used to be the mass of 20 or 30 fighter jets is now the mass of a single crewed fighter jet with a whole load of mm. autonomous stuff whizzing around it. So I therefore think that if we know that we are on the threshold of that sort of technological change, um, anybody who says with any certainty that they know exactly what the size of an infantry or cavalry regiment or a gunner regiment or an engineer regiment needs to be in 2035, 2040, is probably ignoring the pace of innovation. Similarly, the size of the Air Force, the size of the Navy. Um, so I don't like, obviously, people equating the reduction in headcount automatically with a reduction in capability mm. or mass. I don't think that follows given what's happening with the technology and the innovations in the battle space. Um, but it is too early to say with absolute certainty that we're at the point where we can be really, really radical and reduce the number of people in the fight to an absolute minimum because that technology isn't yet proven. If there were a war tonight, it would still look awfully like the fight of 1990-2000 rather than the fight of 2030-2040. So we've kind of we got to balance that transition, which is why I think broadly we're in the right place right now. Mm. Um, what does this mean for um, reserves, though? Because, you know, if Ukraine showed anything, you, you do need personnel for when you lose personnel. Yeah. Um, is there a, a requirement for perhaps a bit more of a scandinavian or baltic approach to you know a bigger more skilled reserve force who are more ready to to join if need be when so, you do lose those troops. so you're right on the zeitgeist you know mo uh, military commentators his military historians will point out that first echelon forces almost never win wars um first echelon forces tend to be sort of deployed in the moment of geopolitical crisis um and fight during the first phase of the war and then it's the second echelon and the third echelon that subsequently go on and win the war. And arguably that's what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment. The, the first echelon forces have culminated. The, the activity of this year and next is the generation of a second echelon force on both sides. Ukraine enjoys the strategic depth of the entire West uh, as its donor community and so should be able to constitute a second echelon force more quickly. What, of course... That has reminded us, as we've been worrying about how to generate a Ukrainian second echelon force, it's the question of us is, okay, well, what is the UK's journey to half a million men and women under arms? You know, where where do we get our second echelon from? Um, and as a consequence of that, in the Defence Command paper refresh, the final chapter was about the need for a sort of national defence plan, small n, small d, small p, um, for now, uh, as... As a, you know, so that we can map out how we are more resilient as a country and how we are more able to transition to a war of national survival. 
a lot of our industrial base has changed since the last time we fought a war of national survival and so there isn't the kind of civilian manufacturing base to repurpose to tanks and ships and planes and tank shells and whatever else so how do we do that mm -hmm. the demands of the modern battle space are uh are increasingly uh furnished by technologies um that we don't have within our sovereign base you know we used to have through the kind of empire and through our own um so, you know organic indigenous resources uh the sort of coal steel oil that we needed for the wars of yesteryear where are our supply chains for rare earths and semiconductors to allow us to build the complex weapons that we would need to be able to build in a in a in a in a time when international when global supply chains aren't functioning think about sort of the blockage of the Suez Canal COVID and uh, and the war in Ukraine and what impact and then you turbocharge that if you imagine the sort of war that NATO might be in um, and then the people piece which was your question uh, absolutely you know how do we you know, how do we have a reserve that is the spine of a second echelon force and a lot of what we're doing with our training of the Ukrainians on Operation Interflex is a really interesting blueprint for that. Now, we've effectively been using British Army Royal Marine units with our partners and allies. And increasingly, we're using reserve British Army reserve units to do that training of the Ukrainians. And so we're, it's always the mission rehearsal, you know, the sort of that the reserve is training a second echelon force and it's an interesting proof of concept as we consider as we signposted in the command paper refresh the need for that national defense plan about how to be more sovereign in our supply chains where we use as a manufacturing base um, if we can't do it all onshore and how do we get more people into our army navy air force um, in order to generate the second echelon when do you think you'll start putting that into practice well i mean we put it into practice in terms of uh, a lot of thinking going into it already that was what was announced in the command paper refresh that we really need to get our head around the stuff that we took for granted in the cold war we haven't had to think about for 30 years our economy has changed enormously in the meantime and so there's a lot of thinking to be done that thinking is underway in the mod but it's a whole of government endeavor really i mean the, you know, in time of war it's not the mod that procures armaments for the military you know there's a sort of the 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 the, the department for industry the department for business and trade will mm. will be you know a really important arm of that whole of government whole of state endeavor um so my suspicion is what was a chapter at the back end of this command paper refresh will be a really important theme of the next defense and you know uh, integrated mm. review uh in a year or so's time because you, know, you cannot say you're back into an age of state-on-state -state competition if you're not willing to fully think through the consequences of how states compete in time of war and that that needs all of that to come into sharp focus be thought about be resourced everything from as i say supply chain supply chain strategy all the way to the scalability of your armed forces doesn't that need to happen a little quicker, though? I mean, doesn't there need to be a solution now? Well, I, I mean, of course, and everybody could say, yeah, it needs to happen tomorrow, but that's just simply not realistic given the scale of the expense, the changes that would be required um, in 
in in the way we think about our supply chains and our sovereignty you know that it, it is inescapably the work of a decade and we shouldn't you know i don't think anybody who says they can do it inside two months is just simply not telling the truth but can some of this not be sped up for instance you know the procurement of artillery shells took a very long time compared to how long it was known that supplies were running low after the donations to ukraine um, the yeah to- i mean that's a, so that's a very interesting case study because it's a bit it's quite chicken and egg like, mm-hmm. there'll be people in the mod on the sort of requirement setting contract giving side of the house who would say you can't give a contract until you know that there's the industrial capacity to build it and then there's people on the industrial side saying well we've got no requirement to have a factory for that right now so until you Mm. tell us it's on we're not going to build it and you've got to kind of get past that um some of that is a failing of the way that we've procured those sorts of things artillery shells missiles ammunition over the last 30 years where we've been in the luxurious position of we would buy a new tank or buy a new aircraft or buy a new artillery piece and we'd buy in one go a stockpile for that platform with no real expectation that it would be needed so you kind of buy a stockpile put it on ice use it and they, and you wouldn't you wouldn't really think you wouldn't really have contracts to top it up on an annual basis so of course what that means is that industry doesn't maintain production lines for these things um therefore what is good about the contract place with bae for 155 millimeter ammunition is that it's a number per year and we can see ourselves kind of buying that number per year for quite a lot of years and we know there's lots of other customers around the world for 155 ammunition that could become export uh, opportunities for that production line too. And so it gets back to that that previous question about the sort of scalability of your industry in that time of national war. If you've got going concerns because you've got annual run rates for all the various things you need, it is easier to scale that than it is to go from a standing start. Minister, we touched on Ukraine a couple of times um, during this recording. And of course, well, the world is not becoming a safer place. We have a war in Europe. We have a war in the Middle East. There are a number of smaller scale conflicts that perhaps are not that visible to our eyes on social media or on the TV. Um, I guess the question would be, are we communicating enough to the wider society that well that luxury of peace that we have enjoyed for such a long time might not be the case in the upcoming years and decades um and well are we really ready for it to put it another way have we communicated effectively the need to invest in our nation's defense and the importance of our armed forces yes and no um but it goes to that conversation we had right at the start of Hmm. the podcast that um things are more contested now there is a narrative that says that if the uk didn't have a military if the uk didn't seek to intervene on what we would regard as the side of right you know to stick up for our values in a rules-based international order then then that war would stop really quickly that somehow we're at fault for seeking to be part of you know for having a military as part of our foreign policy response to things that we regard as wrong because that definition of wrong is hotly contested back home so yes we need to make sure that we continue to communicate the necessity for a uh, for our armed forces i think that although we must try to 
market a career in our armed forces in a way that appeals to a very different generation to people some 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, we, we mustn't ever uh, lose sight of the fact or apologize for the reality that the core responsibility is dealing death to the king's enemies and being willing to risk your own life in the course of doing so. Um, you know, that is inescapably what serving in the armed forces is, is all about. Um, but but that isn't I, I don't think that's the bit that erodes confidence it's a sort of wider um, you know are the armed forces doing the right thing are the armed forces do the armed forces share my values are the armed forces a part of a state with who that shares my values um, and when you you know when you when you speak to people um, I was at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, a couple of weeks ago, um, and just said to them, you know, America is an incredibly divided society at the moment, and said to those cadets, you know, just out of interest, do you wear your uniform back home? And if you do wear your uniform, do you get the sort of thank you for your service that was ubiquitous 15, 20 years ago? And a number of them said no. Um, there was a real correlation with skin color and that answer. Um, and and I just you know that's an extraordinary thing. Now I'm not. It's not for me to offer any kind of deep commentary on U.S. society. Who's to know whether that was a representative thing? But it definitely, definitely translates that the more divided the society, the harder it is, I think, to draw your armed forces from the full breadth of society and to connect the armed forces to society as a whole. And I think it becomes an extraordinary weakness in our state if we end up in a place where a chunk of our society doesn't recognise the armed forces as, you know, serving them. Uh, so we have to work really hard not just to communicate why in a time of growing geopolitical crisis, uh, insecurity, instability, we need a military that is capable and provides real deterrence to our adversaries from ever taking us on. But I think we also have to work really hard to show that our nation's military is drawn from all of society, gives opportunities to people from all of society, and no matter what you think of the politics of the day, to serve in the military remains a noble pursuit that sits aside from politics. On that capability uh, point, you know, for the last couple of years, it's been very slow progress on getting the army um, new tanks, new armoured carriers with Ajax and with Challenger 3. Would it help, do you think, to drive a sense of a, you know, a renewed army to join and to be part of if there was a bit more of a push, a bit more investment? Because, you know, the Navy and the Air Force have got their shiny new submarines mm. um, and their fighter jets. What's the army got? Well, I mean, the army has got... I think it's 29 billion of investment over the next 10 you know it is um if you think about the army as it is now or rewind two years before ajax started coming into service um compared to what the army will be in 10 years time when ajax boxer challenger 3 the new apache um new gun uh, new deep precision fires, new comms are all in service. That is an amazing transformation over a relatively short period of time. 
But it is definitely the case that the army's transformation has lagged behind the Navy and the Air Force. Um, so whilst accepting that macro point, I'd just push back gently and say that if it were simply a case of that modern shiny kit attracts people, then Navy and Air Force recruitment would be demonstrably better than army recruitment, and it's not. No, fair enough. Um, but on the, the sort of the when when the kit arrives, a lot of that is going to be quite heavily delayed. Is it going to be modern enough when it turns up in ten years' time, or is it is it time for a bigger rethink, particularly on <laughs> Challenger? Uh, I don't know whether or not it's time for a rethink on those particular platforms. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the case. What is definitely the case is that all of those big platforms that come through sort of 10-year at the minimum, more often 20-year programs, can the pace of innovation is now such that you cannot expect to set a requirement in 2023 mm -hmm. for a platform that is an initial operating capability in 2033, if you're lucky, FOC at 2038, and everything on that platform is hardwired, locked in, capability on day one is capability in year 20 that's nonsense like that it just the, the pace of innovation doesn't allow for that so whether it is tank ships um, planes what we have to do now is own those big once in a generation programs need to be for a very vanilla base platform they need to be about the sort of you know the core level of protection in the hull the power pack um, and the sort of the, the, the mission critical, the sort mm. of, you know, the safety critical systems that need to be integrated. Frankly, everything else needs to be left as optional and vanilla. And, and we need to get into a place where we're only spending a proportion of the defense budget on those core platforms. And the rest of the defense budget is kept for the spiraling of capability onto those platforms at the pace of technological change so that we're constantly updating. Now, the DCPR, the, the command paper refresh, is really heavy on that stuff. And um, it's not for me to give you a scoop, but um, the command paper was published four or five months ago. Uh, the command paper was a very big hint on what we were working on. Um, procurement reform is a really big part of uh, our work in the department at the moment. It has been nuts over the last three years that we can procure cutting-edge, state-of-the-art stuff for the Ukrainians in six weeks, but can't do it for the British Armed Forces in less than six years. Uh, and that clearly means that we have to change the way we procure. Um, bending steel over decades, but putting tech onto the platforms inside three, four months. That has to be what we're working towards. With that in mind, though, do you want to be doing that with a 30-year-old hull on the tank, for instance? Yeah, because I, I don't think that the hull is necessarily... The hull's not the limiting factor. That what Actually, the, what, what a better question is, are you buying that tank with an open systems architecture and a data protocol that allows it to be completely interoperable across domains and across nations so that you can spiral onto it all sorts of cool tech? Um, and there are still a number of systems that are uh, being procured for whom you couldn't say yes to that, and that is not on. Um, and we need to grip that, and we are. The, 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 I think that the edge, the strategic advantage that 
Western militaries will have is not about mass through numbers, nor actually do I think it's going to be um, in 15, 20 years time an advantage in pure tech mm. terms. I think the advantage that we will have is now our ability to integrate systems and 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 which requires because there's just a there's a uh, our doctrine lends itself to that sort of innovation in thought and uh and and technology and there is a uh there is a war fighting experience that exists within the western military that maybe doesn't exist in the militaries of some of our competitors and so we kind of need to embrace that. If we're not procuring systems that are integratable and on which you can and with which you can innovate and sort of, you know, bring to bear your military cunning to combine systems and overwhelm, then we're kind of not playing to our own advantage. Howard, we started the conversation earlier today with a reference um, to the Remembrance Day that has just recently passed. And I always feel very strongly about this day, as I'm sure everyone around this table does. Um, but um, looking into the future, Minister, how in your view um, can the government and organisations mark Remembrance Day and other key events, for example, the Armed Forces Week or D-Day, to ensure that these commemorations still resonate and remain relevant for the future generations? So, um, probably and most importantly by the government trying to keep out of it as much as the government can. Um, because you know, a theme of the conversation has been that politics is ever more divisive. The way that people react to events of the day are reinforced algorithmically by people they agree with, and so there's a sort of real certainty that that your view is right and everybody else's view is wrong. Um, and uh, what becomes really important, therefore, is moments like remembrance, particularly that they seek to transcend politics and therefore as much as possible sit in the custodianship of um of an organization like the royal british legion that is kind of just mm. you know above it um that said it is um a consequence of rapid societal change that our war memorials and that those mem those moments of remembrance are no longer respected universally. Um, I saw in in the sort of whole thing about you know protests by the cenotaph over Remembrance Sunday. I saw just a clip of um, some people on the top of a bus. Uh, it must have been in about 1920 or whatever else. And they're they're on their way to a football game and they're all sat there sort of laughing and joking, twizzling their kind of you know the clacker things that they used to have in those days. And then as they approach, and you could you could see where they recognised the buildings as they were coming down Whitehall, and then when they got to sort of where the old war office is, they all just stopped, took off their hats, and just in complete stillness went past the staff, then put their hats back on and got on with it again. Now that was a hundred years ago, very very different time. All of the people on the top of that bus will have been veterans of a war that only finished a year mm. or so beforehand. But that instinctive society-wide reverence. For remembrance has gone um i hate the idea that 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 the government has to kind of compel the police to create the space for those who do still want to show that level of reverence the space and time 
to do so. But sadly, I think that that is necessary. Um, but my macro point is that you know, if we allow the poppy Remembrance Sunday, whatever else, to become a a moment of political commentary that somehow it reflects a set of political values rather than simply a respect for the amazing men and women and their families who have made the ultimate sacrifices of a nation, then we're, we're on a very, very slippery slope. Um, and therefore, as much as possible, politics and politicians should stay out of it. So how should we address this issue then as a society? I, I, I don't know that there's an easy answer. Because you know, a lot of it is just societal change, you know, and hopefully it reaches its floor, uh, and we don't. It doesn't continue to move away from it. When I kind of think about the stuff that senior politicians, the Royal British Legion, the chiefs of our armed forces say in the run-up to Remembrance Sunday, I can't imagine what more or what else they would say. When you look at the way that the Remembrance messages have evolved over time to reflect changes in our society and sort of. The, 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 the society is now multicultural and that people from all races and backgrounds serve in our military and have served with distinction. You know, all, all, the, the message of remembrance is, is very inclusive and, and very modern, actually, in the way that is portrayed mm. by the state and the RBL. Um, I just think that it collides with outrage and moral certainty found, you know, manufactured in algorithmically reinforced um, echo chambers that means that you know there's a sort of you know, there's just a part of society that is ever more disengaged from it um, I, I, it, it, it worries me it worries me in the same way as we've discussed the recruitment issue and the way that you maintain the legitimacy of a political decision to send our armed forces into battle you know, it's all part of the same issue um, but I don't want to I, I, it would be wrong if I said I was despairing of it. I'm not. I, I, you know, I, I think that fundamentally our society remains very supportive of our armed forces, um, those who serve now, those who have served in the past, and most importantly of all, those who never came home. Minister Hebe, thank you very much for your time today and joining us for this episode on the relationship between UK society and the armed forces. And Howard, thank you so much for being an excellent co-host. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Defence Talk Securing UK Advantage, brought to you by the Council on Geostrategy in partnership with ADS and sponsored by BAE Systems. If you would like to submit a question for our next episode, please email them to defencetalks at geostrategy.org.uk. To find out more about our new podcast and upcoming episodes, visit www.geostrategy.org.uk. Until next time.